Be advised, the following episode contains content that may not be appropriate for all audiences. I don't know what happened to me, but I'm unable to cry. And I want to. I used to be able to cry when I heard good music. Can't do it anymore. I can't cry. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience in an effort to help us better understand one another. Holocaust survivor Kati Preston was born in Transylvania in 1939 at the start of World War II. Today, she lives in an 18th century farmhouse on 50 acres in rural New Hampshire. When she was five, she spent three months hiding from the Nazis in a barn. 28 members of her family and 50 kindergarten classmates were not as fortunate. All 78 were exterminated at Auschwitz. Kati, it's an absolute honor to be with you today. Thank you. I have a real hard time with Auschwitz. I have not been there. I once in Poland, I had a ticket to go to Auschwitz on the on the on the train and I chickened out because I was on my own. And I couldn't I couldn't do it and I've still got to do it because I have to do it for my family and yet I haven't been able to do it yet. You know, we have no graves, we have no markers. All these people are just gone. There's a German word for it, Vernichtung, which is a very strong, to make nothing, you know, to, to reduce to nothing, Vernichtung. And that's what happened to my family, and it's so sad. I imagine today that this interview will be the most consequential episode that I will ever record, and I thank you for welcoming me into your home and for being open to discussing the Holocaust. As I told you earlier, I was born in Germany to a German mother and an American soldier. My husband's family is Jewish, and I converted to Judaism myself. So I have a particular interest in helping you share your story. Let's start at the beginning. You were born... I was born in a small town called Nojvarod, which is now called Oradia because it's now Romania. And I had a very happy, very well-off childhood. My parents for those days were considered rich. My mother had a very big fashion business. Uh, she employed 40 girls. And, it, you know, she was making dresses for all the rich people from the whole area. My father had a, a fish business. He was wholesaling fish. There were big big crates, wooden crates in the river where we, where the, that went through the town, and he wholesaled these live carp everywhere. And we always had a carp swimming in our bath. I remember that. And I remember going up to this carp and talking to it. I was about four and saying, look, I'm so sorry we're going to eat you, but you're going to taste so good. I was trying to cheer it up. And I had a wonderful childhood. I had everything that a child could desire. My parents doted on me. When I was born, they were considered older parents. My mother was 30 and my father was uh, 40 when I was born. And I was an only child and they spoiled me rotten. I had the most incredible room and beautiful clothes and every conceivable toy in the world. And it was a wonderful childhood. And, you know, everybody in the house was always 
trying to please me and uh, I would be trotted out to my mother's uh, customers and shown uh, and, and wearing beautiful dresses and my hair was always done up and I was always curtsying to these ladies and they were always patting me on the head telling me how beautiful I am and how what a lucky little girl I am and I was a very lucky little girl. And I adored my father. I was my daddy's little girl. He was the, the pivotal character in my life. He was tall and handsome and dark, and he would throw me up in the air and catch me. And he would sit with me for hours on the balcony, teaching me all about the stars, every constellation. I still know every constellation in Hungarian. That hasn't changed. <laughs> and he was a very kind man. For those days, you know, children weren't supposed to be conversed with. They were told what to do, go here, go there, do this, do that. He was always explaining things to me. He was always telling me why I should be doing something. And he would give me money when I went for walks and wanted to make sure that I gave it to the poor. And I would say to him, well, what if they don't need it? And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. If somebody's begging, you you are supposed to be good and give it to them because here but by the grace, grace of God go you. Just because your parents are rich, it doesn't mean that beggar is not as good as you are. That beggar is like you, except he has no luck and he doesn't have a daddy like you have. And this has taught me a lot. He was a very kind man, and he shouldn't have he shouldn't have been murdered for being a Jew. I mean, why, why? Well, never mind. You know, it's hard for me to understand it. It was hard for me to understand then, and it's hard for me to understand now. And then my beautiful life very slowly started to unravel. At first, I was taken to visit the local church by one of the maids, to see the, the little display, the Christmas display, and I stole baby Jesus. <laughs> I stuck him under my coat and went home with Jesus because it was a different-looking doll. I had dolls, but not that one. And my mother takes my coat off and she says, Oh, my God, they're going to say the Jews are stealing Jesus. You better go back there and apologize. So I was dragged back to that church, and there was this very tall, very gaunt-looking priest with a huge nose, like a toucan. And he waved his bony finger at me and told me that I would go to hell for stealing Jesus, and I should never steal anything, especially in a church. And, you know, I was terrified. I never, ever wanted to be near a church. I mean, churches send you to hell. You know, the, the whole analogy was pretty scary. And then my parents decided at this point that I was an out-of-control four-and-a-half-year-old, and they got me a governess. Fräulein, which is, means miss in German. That's what I called her. She was an Austrian lady with a bun on her head and a very, very thin mouth. She had lips like, like a mailbox, you know, very, very strict. She never smiled and she made my life absolute hell. And my parents kept saying, yeah, but Fräulein knows and, and she knows how to bring up a young lady and you have to be a, a young lady from a good family. They all have to have a governess. And, you know, in their sort of ignorance, they decided that I needed to be ladified. So here was Fräulein who, in all fairness, in a mere six months, managed to teach me to read, write and speak German. 
So you can imagine the, 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 the regime was very strict. And table manners, like I had to have a hard-boiled egg under each armpit so that I wouldn't flap my wings at the table. <laughs> and then I had to have a ruler at the back of the chair, which tied around my neck and around my waist for posture. And it worked. I still have good posture. And I wasn't allowed to eat on the street. And, you know, to this day, every time I'm on the street, I'm eating. I'm rebelling. Define. I'm 81 years old and I'm rebelling against Fräulein. And <laughs> I hated Fräulein. And I, I kept complaining and they said, oh, no, no, Fräulein is good. She knows best, blah, blah. And then things started to change, you know. People always say to me, well, why did the Jews agree to go to the camps? It wasn't quite like that at all. It was a slow erosion of your liberty. They started taking things away from people. First, people couldn't go to college anymore if you were Jewish. Then you couldn't go to high school. Then you could only go to Jewish school. I wasn't allowed to sit on my favorite bench at the park because that wasn't a Jew bench. They they designated benches where Jews were allowed to sit and they weren't allowed to sit anywhere else. I wasn't allowed to go to the local swimming pool with my father anymore because I would contaminate it. I was a Jew. And my very first experience of real anti-Semitism was my mother was walking with me. She said to me, uh, I have a present for you. And she brought this beautiful yellow star, which she sewed onto my coat. And she says, from now on, when you go outside, you have to wear this star. And I was so happy about it. You know, little girls like shiny things. And here we are going down the road, holding hands, and I'm skipping like all kids do. We're going to buy some pastries. And the man comes opposite and he stops and looks at me. And I look up at him, you know, sort of expecting him to say something nice about my beautiful star I'm so proud of. And he looks at me and he spits in my face. And the spit runs down from my face onto my star. And I look up at my mother, horrified. The man hates stars, never thinking that it's, it's me. And then my mother, who normally would protect me, takes me by the hand, she shushes me, and she drags me home, and she says, we'll talk when we get home. And then we get home, and she says, no, darling, it's not the star, it's you he hates. And I said, but why? He says, because you're a Jew. I said, okay, but if I don't have the star, he won't know I'm a Jew. She says, but you have to wear the star, because it's the law, you can't go out without the star. I was very confused, and that's the first time that I experienced true, true anti-Semitism. Of course, by this time, another law started coming into, into being that no woman under the age of 45 was allowed to work for a Jewish family. And so all the girls who worked for my mother, the maids were gone, and of course, Fräulein left, which made me so happy. She used to read Grimm's fairy tales. She used to scare me to death. Struvel Peter. That, oh, she read that? that too. I remember I had that Peter. book. Yeah, with a little boy who had his fingers cut off because his nails were too long. Yes. And the little girl who got burnt up because she played with matches. All those, she used to scare me to death. You know, they didn't have the intended effect on me because I played with matches, yet I read that book. I also sucked my thumb, yet uh -huh. I read that book. <laughs> my childhood dachshund chewed some of those pages. But, you know, it just goes to show you that children were not thought of as as people. They were thought of as things to corral and to, and to, and to make obey. 
the grown-ups, old stories were frightening. They were not nurturing stories. They no. were scary stories. What were your parents' full names? My father was Ernest Rubin, and my mother was Gabriella, and her maiden name was Botsok, which is a weird sort of Hungarian-Romanian name. Your mother had twin boys and a girl before, before you were me. born. Yes, she did. All three died prematurely. Oh, yes. You were so yeah, wanted was, as an only child. I was child. very wanted, and not only that, I was very lucky, because had those children survived, I wouldn't be alive today, because she couldn't have saved four. Really? How could she save four children? In when, that barn? Who would have taken four? Right. You know what I mean? I was very lucky to be an only child at that point. So then things started getting getting worse. They started bringing in laws against Jews all over the place. And the Hungarian authorities were very clever because they made everybody register with the police saying they wanted to protect us, so, so to speak. And everybody very, very nicely and willingly went to the police station and told them where they lived, how many people, etc. Then they started calling up the Jews for what they called work details. So my father had to go away and build roads somewhere. And then they built a ghetto. They took a, a poor part of town and they put up great big walls around it with barbed wire, and they decided that all the Jews had to go and live in the ghetto. And of course, they had no problem rounding everybody up because they knew where everybody lived. And at this point, my father came home, and I remember looking out the window, there was a lot of screaming and yelling, and there were people in the street there were soldiers with guns and bayonets and whips, and they were whipping these people onto carts and onto trucks and herding them together into this ghetto. What age were you at that time? I was almost five. And I remember my father and mother saying goodbye, and my mother was sobbing, and then I kind of sort of wormed my way between them, and because they were crying, I was crying, but I didn't realize that it wouldn't be like, oh, you know, my daddy's going away on a business trip. I thought he'd come back and bring me presents like he always did. But the atmosphere was very sad. And then suddenly, after all the noise, there was silence. And I look out the window and there are dogs and cats running around because people were taken so fast. They didn't have time to place their pets with friends or neighbors and there were all these animals. And then the dog catcher came with a long stick with a round sort of hook on it. And he was hooking all these poor animals and throwing them into the back of a truck. And that really upset me almost more than take, taking the people away because as a child, that's what you identify with the pets. And then we were left alone, mother and I, and she said, she said to me, if anybody comes, you have to hide under the bed. You're not supposed to make any noise because people are trying to find you. And the reason she didn't have to go to the ghetto, although she had converted to Judaism, she was not Jewish by blood. And it is Jews by blood that they wanted, not so much the religious part of it. Anybody who had any Jewish blood, even if you had one grandparent who was a Jew, you were supposed to go to the ghetto because they wanted to eradicate the race, the Jewish race. It was not a religious thing. You were in kindergarten at one point. 
Tell I, me about the 52 children. Well, I was in a kindergarten for a very short while. My parents decided that I should find out a little bit about my Jewish heritage because they were very secular. And in this kindergarten, there were 52 kids, and only two of us survived. Only two, two of, of, 52. Of, 50, of 52 children, yes. Let's sit with that for just a moment. It's, it's awful, yes. Little children. Little children. Who did nothing. Who did nothing. And, you know, basically, when they killed the six million, at least two million of them were under 18. Two million? I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. A lot of children. Jews had lots of children because it was a mitzvah to have a child, you know. And and they, 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 they killed everybody. We'll talk about your life after the Holocaust sure. later in the interview, but briefly, you were in touch with that one other kindergartner. I met her in London. She, too, escaped by being hidden by their maid in an attic, apparently. And I met her in London years and years later. I was at a cocktail party, and people were standing there with their drinks, you know, and I suddenly heard a voice that sounded like me. And I thought, wait a minute, that's a Hungarian accent. So I walked up to her and I started talking to her and suddenly we realized who the other one was. And we fell on each other sobbing. It was an amazing historical moment for me. It was it was unbelievable. We were holding each other, you know, and the, all these English people were looking down their noses at us because you don't make public displays like that in London. Not in a proper cocktail party, but we didn't care. And she she was a wonderful woman. She was actually... Uh, a doctor, but unfortunately, she had breast cancer and died soon after we met. You had cancer too? Oh, yeah. I had something called metastatic small cell cancer, and it was totally, totally fatal. It was stage four, and that was 15 years ago. What organ? It was everywhere. Oh, okay. It had already metastasized. Uh, uh, yeah, and apparently it started with a little growth under my chin, and it had gone everywhere, and they never found the primary. But I don't know why I survived, because I'm here. Thank God you did. Well, the thing is that every time I go for my checkups every year, I apologize for upsetting their statistics. <laughs> You know, they keep saying to me, you, you were supposed to die. I said, sorry. <laughs> Describe the local collaboration that enabled the Holocaust. Uh, it was the Hungarian soldiers and civilians who helped because Eichmann, who was in charge of exterminating the Hungarian Jewish society. Adolf Eichmann. By this time, they were losing the war, but he still wanted to make sure those Hungarian Jews were deported. They were the last transport. And he came to Hungary with only 200 Nazi, Nazi officials. And those 200 and Eichmann managed to round up and kill three quarters of a million Jews in three months' time because of the local collaboration, because of the neighbors and the soldiers and the local police. They gleefully con con contributed whatever they could to the persecution of the Jews. Your own people, your My, own neighbors, own, yes. your own communities. Yes. And the same thing happened in Yugoslavia. You saw that happening. Bosnia, you know, they, they kill their neighbors. You know, it was a question of, oh, I'm going to take his apartment, so I better tell them where he is. 
you know, if he's hiding, let's get rid of him so I can have this and I can have that. And it wasn't as if Jews were rich. They weren't rich. I mean, the, the Hungarian Jews were very assimilated. And okay, my parents were considered well off, but it's not like we didn't even have a car. It's not like we were rich like in today's concept. But people were considered uh, better off because they were educated and they were ambitious and they tried to better themselves and they were not reliant on society. So they were hated for it. And also every society has to look down on somebody to make them feel better. It's like the politics today. You know, we, ha we have today, unfortunately, a president who manages to arouse the worst instincts in the lowest of the low. The poorest people who live in shacks are the ones his biggest supporters because he tells them, you're better than those black and brown people. You're going to be rich because they're going to be got rid of and you have every right to, to, to lord over them. And people buy into this. They it's do. It's very dangerous. And that's what, that's what the Nazis did. You were eventually taken to live with a farmer your family knew. After they were all deported to Auschwitz. By this time, I was hidden. A milkmaid who used to bring our milk came to see my mother and said to her, where's your child? And my mother says, I'm hiding her. Don't, don't make any noise. She says, no, 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 let her come to my farm. She'll be much safer there. There's nobody there. And, you know, you can't hide her here. Everybody knows where you are. Let her come to my house. This woman was very grateful to my mother because she was an orphan. And my mother made her a wedding dress when she got married a few years before this. And by this time, her husband was away in the army somewhere. And she took me on her in her cart and we went all the way to her farm. And when we got there, I sort of expected to go to her house. But to my surprise, she stopped in front of this little barn that had two stalls, one for the horse and one for the cow. And she made me go upstairs on this rickety stairs to this little barn attic area that was full of hay. And she said, you're going to have to live here. And I said, but why? I, I don't want to live here. I want to go to your house. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. People want to kill you. You have to hide here. And if anybody comes, you have to make yourself very, very small and not make any noise at all. This was a Christian peasant named yes. Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, Elizabeth. She was a simple Christian peasant girl who, who, who did the right thing. Very rare in those days, but she didn't buy into the persecution, obviously. Well, and she paid some price, too, for uh, keeping you. No, she didn't. Well, in terms of being... Yeah, her she house could being have. ransacked. Yeah, and, yeah, but she could have been killed if of they course, had found me. Of course, which would me. be worse. Yes, but, but they came to look for me, and they, you know, they they were slapping her around, saying, "Where's the Jew? We have information that you're hiding a Jew." And she says, "There's no Jew here. Go look at my house." And How they, do you think they figured that out? Because I found out later, one of my mother's girls who worked for her figured out that I wasn't at home and that my mother oh. wasn't sad enough, so I must be somewhere else and she saw my mother go with toys from the house and she she put two and two together and told the police she could have kept her mouth shut though no, at she the very did least not. she did not and when the communists came they made my mother mother rehire her but that's okay i peed in her tea <laughs> <laughs> that's the only thing i could do that reminds me of the movie the help <laughs> yeah did you see that movie i, I did <laughs> 
But anyway, so where are we? Yes, people then, came to her home the, the, looking for you. Looking for me, and they didn't find me. They ransacked her house. They threw everything around. And then as they were leaving, one of them stopped outside the barn and said, so wait a minute, let's look. the Jew might be up there. So they came charging up these stairs, three of them wearing the green uniforms with the black feathers in their hat, with their bayonets. And they started poking the bayonets all over the hay looking for me. And I scooched under the eaves and pulled the hay over my head, and made myself really, really small. And I remember my heart was beating so loud, I was worried that they would hear it. It sounded like a drum to me. And I was holding my breath, and they, they came closer and closer, and I opened one eye and I look, and there's a big black boot standing next to me, and the bayonet comes down an inch from my face and gets stuck in the wood. And then he pulls it out, and they leave. And I couldn't stand up for a whole day. My legs were like water. And Elizabeth came and she, she tried to comfort me and she held me. And I remember she sang to me and she was very sweet and she was shocked herself. But I expected them to come back all the time. And, and now I was very quiet. I didn't complain about being hidden or anything. You were five when you were in the attic? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How many months were you in there? Three months. Three months totally alone. How did you summon the courage as such a young person? Because I think when there's a crisis, you kind of rise to the occasion. Because, you know, I raised four sons and I don't think they sat still for five minutes. But then again, little girls are a bit more, um, a bit more biddable. If you tell a little girl, now you have to be quiet and sit here for a few minutes, they'll do it. Not like a boy, probably won't. And I was also told that they would try to kill me, which at first I didn't believe. But after the episode with the bayonet, believe me, I, be, I, was, I, I believe they wanted to kill me. Because I realized that dying means having a, a big knife in your head. Because I thought of it as a big knife. And before they started taking the people to Auschwitz, my mother managed to smuggle my father out of the ghetto. She paid off some people, and he was going to escape across the border to Romania, where they weren't rounding them up yet. And he decided to come and visit me before he left. He told my mother, look, I don't want the child to feel I'm abandoning her. I love her. She needs to, she needs to, to know that, and I'm going to go and say goodbye to her. And my mother begged him, don't do that. It's dangerous. He says, no, no, it's fine. I'll go at night. And he walked all the way to that village at night, and they caught him outside the village door, outside the barn, the barn entrance, because they knew, they knew that he would be there. And this woman who told the police about my mother hiding me also made sure that my mother was arrested and tortured. She wanted the child dead, and they tortured my mother, and she never told me what they did to her. She says it was far too humiliating. She never, never told me, but it changed her. She stopped laughing a lot. You know, she used to be a very happy person. And after this, she became very morose. For years, she, she never had that belly laugh that she used to have. She, she was touched by this, but she never told them where I was, very obviously. And then they took all the, all the Jews to Auschwitz. And my father was there with, with a friend from town, and they stole a piece of bread because they were starving. 
and they were found out, and the commander decided to make an example of them. So they took the two men, and this was quite cold. It was, I think, in the springtime. I can't remember. They stripped them naked, and they beat them half to death, breaking bones, and then put each of them in a dog kennel in the middle of the Appelplatz, which was a great big field where all the prisoners had to, had to line up every morning to be counted. And... They wanted to make an example to show everybody what happens if you steal anything and if you disobey. And it took my father two days and a night to die. And that, as a child, made me very, very bitter. I wanted revenge. I spent the first few years after that thinking of what I would do to somebody who did this to my father. I had visions of horrendous tortures I would subject this person to. I would, I would skin them alive. I would burn them. I would torture them. I would make them pay. And I was so full of hatred, so full of rage for years. And, you know, it took me 50 years to stop hating. I don't hate anymore. I don't forgive because I don't have the right to forgive somebody else's death. Uh, but I, I kind of emptied my soul of the hatred because when your soul is full of hatred, there's no room for anything else. And I filled it with love. And basically people say to me, so what's your religion now? I said, well, love. I love, I love. And I'm a, I'm a very happy person, believe it or not, despite everything, because I choose not to be a victim. I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. Have you cried all of your tears yet for the I, Holocaust? I have. And, you know, when my husband died almost a year and a half ago, I have not been able to shed a single tear. I have none left. I have Even not, for other people? No, I can't cry anymore. I don't know what happened to me, but I'm unable to cry. And I want to. I used to be able to cry when I heard good music. Can't do it anymore. Back in the attic, how did you play? What did you well, do to pass uh, the time well, to? Well, basically, I wasn't allowed to leave the attic. so And I wasn't allowed to have too many toys in case they, they found them. So I played with little stones. You know, I was making games out of it. She made me some corn dolls out of hay. And I played with spiders. There were big black spiders that used to scare me. And slowly, being bored and being alone, I made friends with them. They didn't bite. And I caught one of them, and I tied the string to his leg, and I led him around, and he was my pet. And then the leg came off, and I felt so guilty. I maimed my friend. He crawled away somewhere. There were mice there, too, but I could never catch them. They were, quick. Too, they were too quick for me. What did you eat? She brought me food every day. I drank a lot of milk, and I ate lots of potatoes, and, you know, she would bring me food, whatever she had. After my mother came to get me, when the war broke out, and I was, you know, she comes and she says, oh, thank God the war is, is broken out. Everybody was happy about the war. And I said, what, what happened? She says, oh, the Russians will come and they'll be very nice and they're not going to kill the Jews and we can go home and everything will be wonderful. And we said a tearful goodbye to Elizabeth. I still remember her standing at the end of the road waving her handkerchief at us. And we went home and I was very happy to be home except there was no electricity, no heating and no food. 
We had no food at all. My mother found a few potatoes in the basement, which she cooked in very imaginative ways. And that was all. And we would go out in the woods and forage around for mushrooms and things, but there was nothing to eat. And the war was raging. There was an air raid every couple of hours and everybody would run down to the cellar. And then when the air raid was over, we'd come back upstairs and up and down and up and down. And at one point we stopped going to the cellar because we just watched the war from the window. There was nothing we could do. Even even if we had been in the cellar, had we had taken a direct hit, we would have died. And I remember watching from the window and there was a horse and cart going past the house and with somebody's belongings. And suddenly the horse drops in front of our house and the guy gets off the cart and starts kicking the poor horse to make him get up, but the horse was definitely dead. So the guy eventually realized this and he unhooked his cart and started pulling it away by hand and left this horse there. And within minutes, doors and windows opened and people ran out with with dishes and with knives and they started skinning this horse. And it was cold, and I remember as they pulled the the skin off, there was steam coming out of this animal, and people were hacking away at this animal, and everybody was running, eating bits of this horse, and they even took the bones to make soup. And we were all eating this, and it tasted very good because we were starving. And, you know, it it was amazing because... I wouldn't eat a horse now. I I had two horses myself here. They died of old age. I love horses. It's like eating your dog. You know, you don't eat your animals, but when you're hungry, you'll eat anything. And, you know, when I speak in schools, I explain to children that hunger is not like, oh, I'd like the sandwich. It's not like that. It gnaws at your stomach. It You have a headache. Uh, you, you, you hurt. Hunger hurts. It smells weird. You smell different. Your breath smells. Your mouth is dry. And all you can think of is food, food. It's it's very, very compelling. You know, that's all you can think of. And the war was raging and the bombs were falling. And then they, the Russian army started coming across the river. We overlooked the river and they were coming down the frozen embankment across the frozen river and up on this side and they were being machine gunned and as they were machine gunned they sort of fell where they were and it started building up like a big wall of corpses you couldn't see the river anymore and when the last lot came over the top I don't know whether the people on this side stopped shooting or ran away or ran out of bullets but they weren't shooting anymore and we were under Russian occupation Well, they were not warm and fuzzy. They were not very nice. They were raping the women. They were stealing everything they could get. And they had two obsessions. One was women and one was wristwatches. They all wanted wristwatches. And I still remember they were yelling, Davai Barishnya, which means give me a woman, and Davai Chas, give me a watch. And they would have wristwatches up and down their arms you could actually get away from getting murdered if you had a wristwatch to, to trade for your life. My mother made a false wall in our bathroom and she hid most of the local women there. And they were all cowering there and scared. And we were still starving, very hungry. And then my mother decided to take things into her hand and she, she decided to go and talk to the local commander. 
and she made herself look old. She was a young woman, pretty young woman. So she blackened her teeth and put some chalk in her hair and, and drew some lines on her face. And she put a pillow on, on her back under a long gray dress and scrunched over with a scarf pretending to be a very old woman like somebody who was so old she's trembling when she walks and she walked to the local commander to her surprise this was a young woman by this time the russians lost so many people that they were uh, advancing young women and men into high positions and this young woman was a local commander and my mother through the interpreter told her listen i'm a dressmaker come to my house and i will make you a beautiful dress that uniform doesn't do anything for you. And this young woman came to our house, and I remember my mother taking a drape off one of the windows that still had one, and she made a dress for her. And the woman was delighted, and suddenly we had food. We had so much food. We had even had a piece of chocolate. And all the women in the Heidi Hall were eating, 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 and unpicking all kinds of materials so my mother could make dresses because she started bringing the other soldier girls. And it was all very well, but we still couldn't go out. So my mother said to her, listen, we need a guard of some sort. And then they sent us a guard. They sent us two, actually. His name was Ivan. He couldn't have been more than 17. Tall, pretty young boy with blonde hair. And he had a sidekick, an older fat gentleman who was playing the accordion the whole time. And these guys were very drunk all the time. They drank anything they could lay their hands on. Cologne and meths. And they were constantly drinking. And they were very happy. I loved them because they were very nice to me. They taught me Russian songs and dances. And when, you know, they were happy drunks, the two kinds of drunks. Right. These were the happy kind. They were taking pot shots at moldings on the ceiling. And when it got very cold, they would burn our antique furniture in the stove. And then one day, Ivan brought my mother a gift, a goose liver, which was a big delicacy. And he took this goose liver that had a bit of blood on it still and decided to clean it up and wash it for my mother. And not having had running water where he came from, he washed it in the toilet. It wasn't quite clean enough, so he pulled the chain and the liver goes away and he shoots the toilet. He's so angry. That was Ivan. But he was nice. We, You know, I liked him. <laughs> and, and then one day he brought me an orange. I'll never forget, I was sick in bed, and he brought me this, this parcel of white paper, and I opened it up, and I remember this orange. It was like the rising sun and that wonderful odor. I'd never seen an orange before because in those days, they didn't import fruit. You, you ate what grew, and this orange was like magic, and then my mother opened it up and gave me bits of it and then she candied the rest and she only let me have it when I was sick and I wanted to be sick all the time so I could eat the orange and to this day I always have an orange in my house it gives me a feeling of security it's amazing how what you can you can live through as a child if you have to and you're resilient you know I don't think I'm I'm particularly screwed up I managed to live a normal life after that. How? It was almost self-therapy. It took a long time. It's trying to teach myself not to hate. 
That's a deliberate choice. That's a choice, yes. That's a choice. I think I was lucky. I was very lucky because I was bullied in, in school in Romania too because I was Hungarian to the Romanians and I was Romanian to the Hungarians and I was a Jew to all. So everybody picked on me. And plus I was a smarty boots and I always knew everything. So they picked on me. And I remember walking home one day with two long pigtails, you know, and one of the boys cut off one of my braids. And I remember picking up the braid off the off the ground and walking home crying with this braid in my hand and out of nowhere an old man came up to me I have no idea who he was and I think he was my therapist because he stopped me and he says little girl stop crying because if you cry they win if somebody does something to you and you cry you become a victim don't cry don't cry you will be fine cut off the other braid and your hair will look pretty and it will grow back and remember as long as you don't cry and you're strong you can do it and it almost turned a switch that's when I started healing let's talk about the casino operator who eventually became your stepfather uh, when uh, the people started coming back from the camps by this time the Russian soldiers left and some survivors were coming back and my mother came to see me and she says your daddy's going to come home we're going to the train station and he's going to be there and she dressed me up and washed me and she looked very pretty and we both ran to the railway station early evening a train comes in a long big train comes in and people start coming off this train and my mother is holding up a picture of my father, a photograph of my father. Did you know this man? Did you know this man? Have you seen this man? And people come off the train and they scare me because they look like ghosts. Like you can't tell if they're men or women. They're in rags. They have no hair. They smell. They have, they have sores all over. They shuffle and and they sort of walk past me like ghosts and i i don't like them i'm scared of them and i hold my mother's hand and we walk home crying and then my mother says don't worry he'll be on the next train there's two more trains daddy's not going to forget to come home he will be here so we go the next day and still no daddy and my mother starts taking these people home to our house she takes them and she gives them baths and she gives the men my father's clothes and to the women her own clothes. And these people start telling us stories about the camps. And it's horror stories. And I'm not supposed to listen, but of course I hide behind the sofa and listen to every word. And I start getting very scared. I think, oh my goodness, if this is, this is what they did to my daddy he's not coming there's something wrong that daddy isn't here maybe maybe they hurt daddy and i was horrified and still we go back for the last train and we hold the picture and the man comes up to my mother and says don't wait for him he's dead and she says what do you mean he's dead he says i saw him i he was dead and my mother says who are you anyway how do you know me and he says, don't you know me? He was a friend of the family who had a casino and hotel in town where my parents used to go and play cards every Sunday night. And she didn't recognize him. He was in such bad shape. He was half dead. And he was telling us about how he and his family, his wife and the child, 
Dita, who was 11 years old, were taken to Auschwitz. And when they got off the train, Dita and the mother were sent to one side and he was sent to the other. And he said to one of the guards, where are they going? And the guard pointed to a chimney that was smoking. And he says, that's where they're going. He didn't understand at that point. You know, nobody could believe this could happen. The crematorium. A crematorium. How could any of this happen? I mean, the most civilized nation in the world. I mean, we were all in awe and admiration of the German culture. I mean, we were all listening to beautiful music, reading Schiller and Goethe and, and speaking German and loving it. And how can this huge society, this huge intellectual, wonderful, cultured society do this? We didn't believe it. Nobody believed it. And then he eventually got into, into the other side of the ghetto and he started to realize what happened to his family and he was very broken. And the commander of the camp heard that he was a violinist as well, so they broke all his fingers and they didn't set them. So I remember he had hands like claws and that scared me as a child because, you know, it's scary. But he was... He was a broken man, and he come, came to our house, with, and my mother gave him some clothes, and he was telling us. And I found out from him how my father died. We never told my mother. He didn't want her to know. There was no need for her to suffer with that. Let her think he just died of an illness or something, that he wasn't beaten to death and died in a dog kennel. He told it to me much, much later when I was a young teen. His wife and daughter were murdered. Uh, yeah, too. they were gassed. Dita. Yeah, Dita. Dita was 11 years old. She was a lovely little girl, you know. She used to want to be an actress. She, she was a good student and she could play three or four musical instruments and she was a very happy little girl. And yet they gassed her as soon as she arrived, her and her mother, because she was a Jew. And this little girl sort of became my sister. I knew more about her than anybody because because her father was always talking about her. He ended up staying with us and he married my mother and we cobbled together a sort of family out of two broken ones. It wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a love match. It was mainly a comfort match. But he was very good to me. I was very lucky to have him in my life because... Although he wasn't my daddy, he was my stepfather, and I wasn't his daughter, I wasn't Dita, but we had a very good relationship. And he told me so much about this little girl. I knew what she used to like to eat and what she sang and how she danced, and I I sort of felt that she was my alter ego. Uh, he got Alzheimer's disease here in America, and on his deathbed, he held my hand and called me Dita. And I was so grateful that I was able to give him that last comfort. He died thinking his daughter was holding his hand. And that, 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 was, that was an achievement as far as I was concerned. I, it's something good that I could do. And all my life I had a certain amount of guilt because I felt that I've taken her life, I've taken her daddy, and she has no life and I have a life and... How come? You know, the survivor guilt. And that makes you very ambitious because you feel that if you survive, you have to make life count. 
This interview is being published in three parts. Part two takes a look at Kati's life as she emigrates to Israel at age 11 and eventually becomes a highly successful fashion designer, encountering Christian Dior and Harry Winston along the way. Do you have a compelling story? Or do you know someone I should interview? Drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Please tell a friend to listen too. That's how we grow our audience and continue podcasting. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. <laughs>